You are listening to a podcast produced by the Design Institute of Australia, supported by Fisher & Paykel. The DIA is the peak industry body for professional designers, representing Australian designers both here and internationally. We exist to help Australia's professional designers succeed in business and enjoy their working lives while collectively growing Australia's reputation as a design nation. Welcome to The Social Kitchen, conversations on food and design in a changing world. Fisher & Paykel has collaborated with the Design Institute of Australia on this podcast version to connect interesting and insightful Australian and New Zealand designers with designers globally to better understand the role and process of design in the changing world. Today I'm joined by Mark Hayden, Alicia Patel and Nicholas Gurney. Mark is from Fisher and & Paykel and is a Chief Designer in Product Development and so he has a deep expertise in the balance between aesthetics and function, beauty and performance. Alicia is a designer and associate at Ferron & Hay, an architectural practice based in Auckland, New Zealand and Los Angeles. The practice enjoys responding to a range of briefs, commercial, workplace, heritage and public realm, private dwellings and detailed bespoke work for hospitality and interiors projects. Nicholas prefers to design compact spaces. His work is highly functional and considered and he aims to produce dynamic and clever solutions with a focus on the organisation of space. And today we're going to have a fairly broad, loose conversation around functionality and what that means in this, I suppose, changing, changing world we're living in at the moment. It's quite relevant, I think. Um, and the way we are looking at reinterpreting how we live and how we respond maybe to design. So maybe, um, Nicholas, um, considering your work is based around compact spaces, how, how do you respond to functionality and aesthetics and client briefs? For us, um, functionality is, is the primary um, motivator in our work, um, and that stems from the desire of our clients for the very functional spaces. But we, um, we have an approach um, that, we, we, that we refer to in-house as beautility, which is emerging of beauty and utility. And so we, we strive to, um, to achieve something that is both beautiful and functional in, in everything that we do. And... I mean, all of our work is at, is at a very small scale um, and our clients engage us primarily because they need improvements to functionality. Um, they're concerned, obviously, with aesthetics because they've employed a designer, but it is primarily the functionality that, um, that we're employed for. So how, how is your aesthetics um, approach differ to others with functionality? I suppose, you know, you, 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 with such small spaces and... Um, dealing in pure functionality, you, you want the aesthetics to be an obvious lead into that functional use of space, don't you? No, certainly. I mean, at the outset, we'll, we'll, um, we'll solve the spatial organisation um, and meet those objectives, um, and that's very much intertwined with the functionality. But it's only probably at that point that we start to, start to talk to clients about how things might look because we see the aesthetic very much as the sort of as the presentation or as the face um, of a design. Um, and, you know, for us, it, it is a little bit easier to dress something up than it is to make it functional. Right. And I suppose that's, um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a good sort of um, point for you to sort of come in and talk about, Mark. Um, you know, obviously you're design, designing appliances um, and there's obviously an aesthetic um, part to that, but they're very functional at the end of the day, aren't they? 
Yeah, that, that, that's right. And I mean, I really like that the term uh, utility. Um, I might might steal that one. Um, I think. <laughs> <Sorry about it. laughs> Not in New Zealand, though, right? Um, so, so I think. I mean, the kitchen spaces and laundry space are they're, they're very functional spaces in their own right, but but of course they are very aesthetic spaces as well, and they need to uh, to embody a personality, um, but. You know, we we don't we don't discriminate between functionality or or aesthetic in, in that regard, and, and try and get that hit that sweet spot um, of of achieving of achieving both, but but yeah. not at the expense of the other. Is is that term um, form follows function still relevant? Is is that um, one of the principles you use, and is it still relevant in what you do? Yeah, I think I think from for me anyway, from from a personal perspective, that is, um, you know, the the idea that um, you know of good ergonomics and that the, the the aesthetic of a product does follow that the functional requirement is is really important, and um, you know, for us, it's not about decoration or or just adding um frills i guess if, if for for one of a very simple term just for for no reason you know we we need to justify every every decision both functional and aesthetic that, that we're making so you know starting off with that that form follows function principle i think is is really relevant for us yeah i mean i um have just returned from a bit of a holiday in the southwest and their oven and microwave um i actually couldn't understand i had to go onto the internet to find the uh, user manual <laughs> and it was a very high-end product and um i couldn't actually turn the oven on or the grill on i just didn't know how to do it and it was a, a button that was disguised you had to turn it but it just um the microwave was a push in push out and this was a push in push out and a turn and it just wasn't obvious um for for the oven so that just shows you how um, how confusing it can be, I think, in, in product design, especially when you try to um, put a lot of functions into something like an oven. You know, you know the old ovens really you just you get it to a temperature, you have a timer maybe, and that's about it. But now there's 101 options, isn't there? Well, and I, and I think it's very easy to overdo it. And, um, you know, I think that idea of, um, of a product being intuitive and, and communicating its function and how it works is really is really important, and um, you know, to us at the end of the day, the the product is is a subset of the the kitchen or the laundry environment, and so actually we need to show a lot of restraint in that regard because there's a there's a much bigger, much more complex picture that our products have to to sit comfortably inside. Yeah, they're not necessarily taking centre stage, are they? Or they shouldn't be. Yeah, not not always. In some instances, maybe if if you're a, if you're a particularly keen chef, or um, and and that is something you're very passionate about. But other times, no, the product is very much in the background. Yeah, definitely. So, Alicia, how does functionality um, define your design process? How do you respond to that? I mean, obviously, you're doing quite a um, a vast variety of projects, from commercial through to residential, as an example. 
Yeah, well, I guess um, our practice is slightly different to Nicholas's where we probably don't specialize specifically in smaller spaces. And so our approach to design and the diversity of projects, I would say is really led by um, our clients and what their actual needs are. And I I feel like across the practice um, and across the various projects that we would have uh, uh, in the studio at any one time. Um, it's really, it's it sort of starts off as a, as a conversation with the client and really understanding, um, you know, what their needs are um, and what their aesthetics are. And, and I guess that sort of hierarchy of what is important to them. Um, you know, we see a, a range of clients where, um, for example, if we're talking about kitchens, where uh, the kitchen really is the hub of the home and, you know, cooking and functionality is very important and they have very specific ways of how they might use a kitchen. Um, and that really feeds into uh, how we might design, whereas we might have other clients where the kitchen is, is of less of importance. Maybe they cook less or um, they're just simply not at home as much and so won't do as much home cooking. And And I think our spaces sort of um, evolve around that. And so I don't think we have sort of a, um, a specific way that we would approach design. It's quite different um, in every case. But I guess in, in terms of how we um, you know, when we get a new project, um, I would say we definitely tackle the project in a more holistic way in terms of our architectural response. So if it's a new build, you know, it will definitely start um, at a larger scale in terms of response to site. And then as you sort of hone in on, and, you know, that will have implications when we're doing spatial planning and we sort of situate a kitchen, like, you know, these functional spaces in a certain um, area within the more holistic design, I think we have these initial ideas. And I think um, as we progress through the design phases and and come to these, um, you know, developed design phases where we definitely start to hone in on the detail around these spaces. How do they function? What is the materiality? What are the connections to other spaces? Um, I think that it's, we find it really important of keeping what the original idea um, was at the beginning. And so we sort of have an idea about what these spaces might look like. And I think it's really interesting as the design process goes on as to how those spaces evolve and what might, what we hold on to and, and try really hard to hold on to and what does evolve as the design process happens. Well, I suppose you're dealing, I mean, you, you, you talked about the, um, the, you know, the landscape to start off with, I suppose if it's a house or a building or something like that, you, you, you're dealing in a macro scale and you slowly build so slowly um sort of draw down into the the more micro details as as the project sort of um progresses don't you so you you, you start to you start to probably look at some of the spaces that nicholas is looking at as well i'd imagine correct yeah yeah that's that's right yeah um an interesting thing um how how um you you've got um a quite a diverse practice there and quite a, a range of projects you work on do you take experiences and um sort of um, ideas that you've developed from from other sort of areas, say like in, say, hospitality, take them into residential, especially when it comes to a kitchen, how that operates. I mean, obviously in hospitality, a chef might 
work, want to work in a particular way, but there's a lot of cross opportunity for cross fertilization of ideas and um, design development. Yeah, definitely. And I think also it's interesting the scale of the projects that we have in the office sometimes, while it's a residential project. Um, the scale of them means that essentially they end up being a sort of commercial or working as a commercial kitchen or they may have um, chefs that are um, using that kitchen to cook for the occupants of the home um, and they want it to be, um, you know, the design needs to facilitate that the way that they would specifically work. Um, so I think that that's yeah, it's a really interesting question and we definitely do, a lot of our design ideas would do cross-pollinate between, um, you know, sort of hospitality and commercial projects uh, to residential projects and it's, it's, it's mostly due to, to scale of project. Yeah. How about you, Nicholas? Do you, do you find there's um, a learning experience across different types of projects that you might take on? Yes, certainly. Um, I think the learning comes from um, the different different requirements of, of our individual clients, and that pushes us to places that we, we probably haven't been before. But we, I mean, we, we tend to revisit details, um, particularly ones that were proposed in the past and maybe didn't make it, didn't come to fruition. Um, because in any one project, we might we might propose five or six ideas that that are not. Um, that that client perhaps isn't, perhaps is not game to to do, um, and we'll sort of bank them, and and they'll come up later. But yeah, I mean, every project is a is an opportunity to push something forward and um, and invest yeah. in new ideas. And if it doesn't if it doesn't eventuate, then it then it, it, it might resurface later. Yeah, and learning from past experiences and different disciplines. I think that's um, one of the uh, big changes in design in the last sort of. 10 to 20 years is it's become more multidisciplinary, you know, truly not just people saying that, but also um, even across different professions, you know, whether it's, you know, using technology, engineering, whatever within projects. Now there's a lot more of that going on. Was, in the past, it was, you're probably more isolated as a designer, you, you know, you were the one creative, but now you're probably part of the team. Do you, do you rely on, 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 on a wider group of expertise as well? Oh, certainly. I mean, my, my background or my training is in industrial design, but my, my experience is very much in the home. Um, and the people that we work with, um, we, we work with very closely and we have relationships with for, for a number of years. Um, and so they understand how, how we like to do things. And it just, it, it means that, you know, we can sort of shorthand a lot of things and then, and then work collaboratively with um with makers and um, and builders and things to progress a project beyond what perhaps we could have just done in in the studio. Yeah, definitely. Um, Mark, I was just wondering also um, with the way technology is going, how do you do you find that actually improves functionality? I mean, obviously, obviously it can, but I've seen a lot of examples where almost people go down the technology path, and because you've got so many options and opportunities, it becomes rather confusing. Um, and I think, um, I mean, from my experience, is it's almost it's that that other thing that that keep it simple sort of uh, principle is also quite relevant. Um, most of us seem to lead quite simple lives when you actually sort of draw down into what what we require. Um, how, how's Fisher and Pipe sort of approach that? Have you have you sometimes sort of been offered technology that you go don't really need this? Don't how, how do you evaluate that? 
Yeah, it's it's really it's a really good question, and of course, um, you know, with this kind of connected, always on Internet of Things um, world that we we live in, there's always the kind of um, the tension to to want to want to just put all of that into into products as well, and we see a lot of you know that's where a lot of other industries are going. And I think that the um, the critical point for for us often is people are investing in appliances somewhat somewhat very rarely, and ultimately the product needs to stand the test of time for longer than you know the the mobile phone in your pocket or you know the LCD TV that you have. So, so that's the kind of that's the the tension that we'll apply to it. Really, is 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 this piece of technology that we're considering, is it going to stand the test of time? But then also, of course, what benefit is it going to actually provide to to the user, to the customer that is is purchasing uh, the product, and and ultimately going to have to to live with that piece of technology? And you know, is it because you're right, everybody's everybody's busy. We're all time poor, and actually, the one thing in our lives I think that we kind of gravitate to is simplicity. So, yeah. if the, if the technology equals simplicity, then that's probably a, a good starting point. Um, but often, <laughs> often it doesn't. I, I also think that um, you know humans are um, creatures of habit and. You know, it's really nice to be able to buy a piece of technology um, that really works for you and have it work for you for 10, 15 years. And often, you know, although technology continues to evolve, if you, you know, if you manage to find something that really works for you, it's really nice to be able to just keep having that. You know, I mean, a perfect example is my parents bought a Fisher and Paykel oven 15 years ago now, and the elements, you know, fallen out, but they don't want a new Fisher and Paykel oven. They want the exact same oven that they've always had. And, you know, we've managed to, um, to, you know, they've managed to keep the, their Fisher and Paykel oven and they just love it. And they don't actually want or need to upgrade the technology because they absolutely love the way that it was working right from when they had first bought it. You know, I mean, that brings up, that's an interesting um, sort of subject, really, because as you say, we are creatures of habit, um, but also there's some very, um, how, do you, how would you explain this? I suppose deep, deep within our DNA or psychology, that's, you know, we, we perceive things, we see things in, the, in a particular way, we respond to, you know, dials and knobs in a particular way, because that's the way our brain's made up, as an example. Um, yeah. And we need, you know, so technology's also got to um, deliver easy responses, I suppose, you know, um, easy solutions. We've got to see that solution fairly simply. Sometimes technology can be buried down. So this is where, I suppose, functionality comes into that design process as well. It's, uh, it's being able to review what's in front of you and strip it away. Um, my, my, my feeling is that we're probably going back to more of a simple life. You know, people are starting to appreciate good cooking. Um, they're prepared to maybe take a bit more time um, and maybe some of these smaller spaces um, you know that you're designing, Nicholas. You know that's that's what people appreciate. They appreciate that sort of bunkering down, I suppose, and appreciating the smaller spaces, the simplicity of those. 
Certainly. I think we, we look for um, another term that we use is, um, is reductive or reductivism. Um, sorry with all these big words, but it just for us, it's, it's this idea of extreme simplification. Um, you know, do we need, you know, people need somewhere in the home nowadays to, to both dine um, and work and perhaps two occupants need a space to work. But can we reduce what could potentially be three surfaces? Can we, can we condense that into one surface? Um, can the kitchen not look like a kitchen or can part of the kitchen extend into the living space or the, the dining space but at the same time not look like a kitchen? Um, so that we're, we're creating this, this extreme simplification of the living environment. Um, and, and for us, it, we, that, for us, that sort of stems from a very low-tech approach where, where the less technology, almost the better, um, where, anything, where anything that would ordinarily be mechanical, or, you know, some sort of mechanism, can we, can we really simplify that to the point where it's actually just done, you know, by the user with their hands, um, a little bit like the way things pop out in a caravan or spin around in a caravan. Um, you know, the, the, the more low-tech those solutions are, the better. Well, I suppose um, Japanese design is a really good example of that, isn't it? You know, the way they use their spaces and they're almost multi-use as well. Um, and well, it's look, more responding to the tactile yeah. and... Sorry? Yeah, oh, absolutely. The Japanese, um, yeah, fabulous inspiration for us. Um, I just wish that we didn't need, you know, balustrades and, um, <laughs> you, know, you know, we could we could sit on the edge of ledges that are three stories high and live in glass boxes and all this sort of stuff. But um, yeah, look, all of that stuff at the end of the day just provides fabulous inspiration. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? And so, um, do, do you find um, there's a more of a tend towards to go to the smaller design, the more human humanistic approach, the more tactile? nature sort of approach to design is there a response to that i think so um sometimes the tendency in a very small space is just to to hide everything um and if you put everything behind cupboard doors and you sort of in a way you're reducing that that humanistic quality um the opportunity to to um, yeah, um the opportunity to to be with things around you um so I guess I guess that that sort of comes down to that's a that's a preference for a client I think. Um, yeah. I mean I understand how I want to live and and no two people really want to live the same. Um, so yeah, I think that's 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 a preferential thing. How how much um this might be a good one for Alicia. How, how much um of this designer's role is in sort of like um showing a different way of doing something to a client, you know, like, you know, a different way of living, a different way of using a space. So, you know, you talk about, you know, we just, just mentioned there about putting things in cupboards as an example, which is a very minimalist sort of approach. Um, whereas, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with this myself. You know, we've got so much stuff around. I'd like just to get rid of it, most of it, so I can appreciate the stuff I really like and actually have it out there on display. Um, you know, and a good designer in, in my case would hopefully lead me down that path as, as an example if I, if I were a client. Yeah, well, I think it, it does come down to, um, you know, aesthetics. And I, I, I'd like to think that um, a lot of our clients, you know, we do definitely have a specific um, aesthetic. And I think that the type of clients that come to us um, acknowledge and appreciate that aesthetic and, and are generally on the same page. So 
I would I would almost say that we don't have to work too hard in terms of um, understanding how our clients would like to use a space. Um, it's definitely an approach that um, I think we naturally um, take on and we like to provide sort of clean, uncluttered uh, spaces. But I think it it also comes back down to you know, the client's personality. It comes down to um, the building typology um, and and what the space is actually being used for. And, and so I don't think there's like really a one-size-fits-all yeah. approach to, to how we design. But um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we definitely have, have quite a clean aesthetic and we respond really well to that. And I would say that most of our clients um, naturally do also. Um, a lot of them have, you know, extensive art collections and appreciate sculpture. And so our spaces try to reflect, you know, clean lines and, and clean surfaces to hero those types of um, positions or things that they envisage moving into the spaces that we're creating. So I think naturally, um, yeah, a lot of our architecture sort of responds to that. But yet, the, but yet design process is still taking them on a journey and, and helping to inform them and give them new opportunities really, isn't it, about the functionality of space and how they can use it. That's a major yeah. part of what you would be doing. Yeah. Which sort of comes sort of back to you then, Mark. I mean, obviously aesthetics plays a huge amount in the selection of the appliances. I know it does for me. How do you balance that up with the functionality of it? Um, do, do you find that... Um, people respond very easily to your product, right? Because it is it is that way. Is it something you struggle with the aesthetic and the functionality of it? You know, say for instance, the the lack of knobs means that you know you've got a knob that you push in and maybe can have ten different functions, but it may not be that intuitive. Do you find there's a a bit of a push and a pull there? And how do you how do you sort of resolve that? Yeah, I mean, there definitely is a tension there because. Um, you know, often when there's a purchase decision that's being made, it, it really is about oh, how many functions and how many features does this this product have. But in a, we know for a fact in, in real life and in real use, you know, those 20 functions that you thought were going to be really important, you use one or two of them in, in your day-to-day life because for all those reasons we've talked about being creatures of habit and wanting simplicity and wanting ease of use. But I think I think there are also, is, and we've talked, um, Alicia and Nicholas have talked about this as well, there is a, a bit of personal choice there as well. As some people actually are quite comfortable you know, with a bit more technology and are prepared to, you know, for example, have a touch screen on a on an oven because that's what they've grown up with and 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 that gives them every choice that they could possibly imagine. But then there's also another customer type who who doesn't need that degree of or doesn't want that degree of technology and, and will gravitate towards a more um mechanical but obviously done in a very beautiful way uh, approach to to you know to a dial on an oven for example um, yeah but but i think the the other thing i would say is um you know that the the choices that somebody can make and you know if you a lot of a lot of as i was saying before a lot of our products now you know they very much are subsets of the kitchen and so 
the aesthetic, we're almost giving the aesthetic away because you can choose to have the product behind cupboard doors that match the rest of the kitchen. And so that's the, to us, that's the, that's the ultimate design because we're, we're relinquishing all control of the exterior of the product to, to, the, to the kitchen environment. Um, but we know because that's important because functionally that space and the way that that space sits within the home, within the kitchen, within the home, is, is paramount really. And uh, the, the product doesn't need to shout out in that regard. But so is, is, is that your approach then? Is that your approach to sort of like blend the product more into the background and then more or less have it disappear to a point until you use it and then it becomes very obvious how you use it? You know, when you I think, open up yeah, the dishwasher. Yeah. Or... Absolutely. And I, but I, again, I think that there's a personal choice there because we also design products, uh, if you think about our North American market, that mm-hmm. it really is all about the product standing out yeah. and and the, these big stainless steel products that are the hero of the kitchen environment, and that that's just catering to a different personality. Um, yeah, well, I had a client where um you know it's a beautiful house down on the beach, um but he just needed a big stainless steel fridge. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. and yeah. he was he was an engineer. You know, they were engineers, and that's you know that's where they come from. You know. <laughs> Yeah, and, and, and for, you know, if you apply that function, functional thinking, you know, to some people, well, if you hide it behind cupboard doors, then how do I know where it, where it is and how when my guests come around and I'm entertaining, how will they know where the fridge is? So whereas if, no, it's, a, you know, if it's a stainless steel product, then it's very clear. It's interesting that while Mark has this tension between, you know, um, aesthetics and function and, and integration and non-integration and um, you know what's more functional and stuff we at the at the client end we have the same um, we have that same tension because at the end of the day probably the most functional way to do this is to just express a, express a kitchen in stainless steel appliances right um, yeah. but then the client says well then it's just going to look like a big bit of shiny metal and it's going to look immediately like a kitchen that butts up against my lounge and so there's always that tension where, okay, well, if we're going for the most functional thing, then we do this. If we're going for the most beautiful thing, we do this. You know, maybe we land on middle. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting to know, to, to know that that tension exists both at, at the outset and also at right, right, at the, right at the end of the process as well. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with you. It, it seems to be um, an, an issue all the way through the design process, You're, especially if you've got a client. If it's yourself, it's not so much of an issue because you probably start out with an aesthetic anyway and a, and a function and it makes life a bit simpler. What, what about, um, I, do, do you think um, designers are taught enough, you know, we've, we've been talking about almost um, intuitive design when it comes to functionality, you know, like, you know, if you look at a, you know, say an appliance, you know, if, if you've got a whole set of dials there, if they're done well, you can sort of understand what it is as opposed to burying it down in some sort of user interface. Um, do you think as designers we understand enough about, we're taught enough about the way we respond psychologically, the way we perceive things, you know, just the way, you know, the, you know, the fact that we're, 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 we're natural beings basically and we're wired up in a particular way. So some things are obviously better than others. Do you think we're, we're taught enough about that? And, and are those things that you apply to your practice anyway? Do you, do you understand those and apply those to your practice? 
Um, well, it's, I mean, it's interesting because our, I have a, um, a 15-month-old daughter and she, in a roundabout way, can use the oven um, because it's at, it's at her eye level. She sees us use it. She understands which buttons do what. So in many respects, these user interfaces are ingrained within us from a very young age. And we, we don't know we don't know exactly when when we learn them. It's just something that I think we pick up along the way. Um, and then it's the job of, of guys like Mark and, and you know people in, in product design and things to make um, to make getting to where we need to go um, as as simple as as um, as practicable as possible through through the user interface and things. Um, and then yeah, and then just reduce the product down to its to its most simple, I guess. Um, yeah, definitely. So yeah, I think I think those um, things those things are just picked up along the way. I don't think I don't think we are necessarily taught a lot of those things. How, how do you feel, Mark, in, in the product in development of products? Then um, is there a sort of an experience you can draw upon from you know like you know the, the more the anatomy of, of of you know we talk about ergonomics, but it's also about how you perceive things, how your eye sees things, how you. Um, your attention span, you know, what, what you focus on, for instance, does that affect the way you approach the design process? Yeah, I mean, absolutely it does. And I, and I think probably to answer your question uh, initially, I certainly can't, I mean, it's been a while since I studied, but it's certainly not something that we, we really discussed a lot was, you know, the, the psychology of product other than, around the storytelling piece of it, you know, the product and the ability of a product to communicate its heritage and tell a story. So I yeah. guess in some ways maybe that is that is doing it. But yeah, there's something about if there's a if there's a round thing on an oven, you know, you you know to turn it. And if there's a, you know, if there's a, a smaller round thing with a detail on it, you know to push it. And so there's there is just this ingrained, inbuilt um, behaviours that, you know, as Nicholas has so, so rightly said, that we just grow up with and they're, they're these learned behaviours. But I think what's interesting is, you know, as we all carry around, you know, touchscreen mobile devices and they are our life, how that kind of is is changing, especially around that kind of that tactile quality and that that perceived quality that you get from from a kind of a physical interaction with something. Did you know that the DIA offers an obligation-free 30-minute legal consultation service to all DIA professional members? This service is provided by the DIA's expert legal advisors, Partners Legal. Partners Legal is an Australian law firm with expertise in servicing the design sector. They have legal skills and experience to take a broad view of your world, looking at all possible relationships and applying relevant solutions to your particular situation. For more information, go to design.org.au or follow the link in our show notes. Yeah, you're right. And it's interesting. I don't know if any of you saw the SpaceX launch. Um, Did anybody get to have a chance to see that and actually see inside the actual capsule that the astronauts are in? If, if you can, just go and have a look at the interiors of the um, of the actual, I think it's called the Dragon Capsule or whatever it is. I can't remember the name, but, you know, the capsule that actually took them because they basically have about four touch screens in front of them, the size of, um, I guess, like a, an A5 
three a two sort of page each of them um and they've so they stripped it down to basically a white interior with a whole pile of touch screens in front of them they've taken away or if you if you look at the apollo missions and all that all the dials the knobs the buttons and they've stripped it right back to this really interesting user interface that seems to be very intuitive from what i saw but also um it's the way technology is going because you know a lot of that was also done by remote control basically but it, you can sort of see how that's sort of coming into the way we're understanding how to use touchscreens now and it's designed specifically for purpose. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think, um, you know, I think the other thing around when we talk about functionality is often it's, you know, the, the thing that we gravitate or that is gravitated to is around the user interface and, yeah, around dials and touchscreens. But I think for us often... The discussion around functionality is some of the less kind of interesting areas, but you know the other things that you live with around how easy is it to clean and and what is the what is the feeling of that door when you open it and close it and what what kind of emotional response do you get from that? Um, you know, if you think about if we think about a refrigerator, for example. The, the user interface is very rarely interacted with. So the functionality of the product is so much, so much more about the rest of the things that you, that you interact with within the product. And I'm sure, you know, if you think about, you know, the kitchen environment, the home environment, you know, the functionality is really about the materiality and about the, the beautiful spaces and the emotional response you get from walking inside a space and, yeah. And how how it communicates to you? Well, I think you're right. I think user experience can inform the functionality of a, a space or an item or whatever because it encourages you to probably explore it more. If you appreciate it more, um, you, you you touch it more, you interact with it more. Um, and maybe is, is that maybe why Apple products um, have been reasonably successful? You know, that's certainly a Steve Jobs approach to it, isn't it? It's, it's the user experience. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. How do you sort of um, handle that, Alicia? You know, do you obviously the user experience is is really important when it comes to the aesthetics as well. But it's the way you walk through a space, isn't it? It's the way you interact with that, and then I suppose it's also by doing that you, um, I don't know, you come across items you might not have seen necessarily that stand out if, if you're encouraged to, to actually interact with that space. I think, I mean, I, I guess also for us, I mean, just touching on this topic of functionality and 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 how intuitive products are I think for us it's definitely a generational issue as well you know I think that the younger generation are probably uh, less exposed to the ideas of um, a dial or something you know a knob that's on an appliance is that which is directive to how the product might be used, they're actually more intuitive towards a touch screen because that's what they've actually um, been brought up with. So I think that we sort of um, des- design spaces accordingly. You know, it can be as simple as, um, you know, a light switch is a room actually controlled by an iPad and as intuitive as it that it's it works on sensors so that when you walk into the room it intuitively knows what you might what kind of setting you might have or is it that the client is actually more 
into the more tactile type of light switch, you know, so it has a physical switch. And so Mm. I think um, our spaces, you know, we design those spaces accordingly um, to the client and what is more intuitive for them. And in some instances, it's, it's sort of having both. It's from an aesthetic point of view, we would prefer to have, um, you know, a visible switch um, with a beautiful metal faceplate, um, but then also having the option of, um, you know, this more, the, the higher technology of that space and being able to control it via iPad. So I think, um, yeah, I think that, that, that the variety of options of how we design spaces is really vast and um, which which actually works in, in our favor. I, I don't think that um, we favor one way or the other. I think that um, depending on what the client um, prefers, you know, we have a design solution for either, I think is probably. No, it's great. I mean, and, and, and it, it just shows you the number of opportunities and, and options we have um, really because we can go one way or the other or you know, we're in between the two, can't we? Um, but it's yeah. finding the solution that that really works, that is intuitive, is functional, um, and actually does the job, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and, and, and Nicholas, uh, how, how much um, technology do you use in spaces then? You know, like, say, for instance, we talked about light switches, or sorry, lights that dim automatically or come on automatically. Do you use that sort of technology in the small spaces, or do you find that your client, clientele, they're not really into that so much, they're into more the tactile? Uh, a lot of our work is um, we work with very, very modest budgets. Um, and so I guess we, we have to create a hierarchy at the outset of the project. Um, and in that sense, technology is probably fairly low, um, fairly low, fairly low on the list. Um, I think we, we invest, we, we encourage our, our clients to invest heavily in, in lighting and in integrated lighting, um, but almost always just relate that to a, the, you know, the most standard switch probably on the market um, mm. because for us it's not these, it's not these luxuries that are, that are important um, in these very small spaces. And we're talking about, you know, a single room. When you come in the front door, the entire space reveals itself. Um, so for us the, the focus is more on um, the function within the plan and how the plan works, um, but also just, just the most basic of principles, you know, light and space. Um, ventilation, these sorts of things, and, and technology, to, to be fair, exists pretty far down, down the list. Yeah, I suppose until it becomes more available, I suppose, at a, at a cheaper and more robust price and more relevant to what you need, isn't it really? It's, it's really what you're looking yeah, for. Yeah, and, and, and at the end of the day, if, if you're trying to, to complete a budget on, on uh, complete a project on a particular budget, it, it comes back to, to value add. Um, and so unless it's, unless it's a remarkable value add, um, it's it's probably not going to be a primary consideration of the client, and 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 a lot of technology changes. I mean, you just got to look back over the last five years and just see, hey, how the prices have come down, and how maybe what you had as a user interface doesn't work anymore, or a protocol for talking from one to another machine doesn't work anymore. So, um, you know, there's something about a light switch, isn't there? That's a light switch, <laughs> you know how it works, you know, you can almost fix it, you know, um, yourself yeah. to a point. Um, yeah. There's nothing that complicated about it. So I suppose, you know, Mark, you know, that's also, I, I guess, where, where you guys um, come in because you're designing products that are robust and 
last hopefully last um, quite a while. I mean, one of the the previous um, interviews we did um, a few weeks ago was um, I, I don't know remember who it was, but one of the architects basically parents had a similar story to what was just discussed. They had a washing machine there was something like 30 years old or 40 years old and still going, you know. Um, and there's something about that, isn't there, where you, you you don't have, you know, you don't have an issue with a motherboard because you can't get it anymore. It's just really, you know, a few nuts and bolts or another motor or something like that. Yeah, yeah I agree. And, and I think um, because we know, we know people, you know, if somebody is buying a new oven, for example, you know, the, the expectation is that that will last. You know, that will last 15 Fifteen years, twenty years, mm. um, and which is which is great because we don't we don't want to be creating products that are disposable either. Um, that does that's of no use to to anyone, least of all the planet. Um, so, you know, if we can set them up and if we can use technology in a in a smart way, so maybe the technology is easily easy to update the software, for example. Um, so that extends the life of the product or the technology is um, is about energy efficiency perhaps. So we use the, the smartest technology to achieve the most efficient refrigerator. Then, then they make good, they're good choices for the life of the product um, and for, for the consumer as well. So um, I think there, there is some sensible things, some sensible decisions that we can make. Maybe. Yeah, it's, it's um, you know, if every conversation we've had comes around to this sort of topic of sustainability, but um, in my opinion, sustainability is just good design. It's making good and appropriate choices, really. I mean, we've talked about this for decades in a way, you know, yeah. and, and if we can make a product that's um, a product or an interior or a small space, it doesn't matter, you know, that Actually, um, I, I understand the constraints of budget and client aesthetics or whatever, but you make those good choices and people value then the product or the spaces. They will last for a long time and become sustainable. You know, there's that word, you know, that we're trying yeah. to achieve. So to me, good design is sustainable design. It always should be that way. And it's interesting how we've always seemed to come around on that. I, I, I suppose, you know, where, you, where you're coming from, Nicholas, you're, you're designing small spaces. It's, it, that's really looking at sustainability isn't it it's rather than i suppose knocking down something or people moving out they're moved they're, they're staying where they are and you're trying to create these better spaces for them to you know really invest in what's already there would that be right yeah absolutely i mean all, all of our work is in existing building stock and for us it is it is just a um you know it, it's ultimately like a our role is procurement basically where we bring together you know appliances from from brands like Fisher and pikel and then we bring in um, you know, low voltage LED lighting, and then we bring in, um, you know, cabinetry made from um, environmentally sustainable materials, and um, and we try and limit the amount of materials, and we try and limit the processes, and we try and limit the amount of construction. We try to do as little as is possible all of the time, um, and we don't we don't even um, I mean we don't obsess over um, longevity because we just we, we just have this overarching feeling that what we're doing is right um, and that it will stand the test of time and that it, it won't need attention again for a very long time. Um, yeah. And at its most basic level, that is that is sustainability, right? Yeah, definitely, yeah. Um, and I think allowing things to age well, you know, <laughs> to actually wear, wear down and still be functional and still be use, 
useful yeah. and to yeah, appreciate really sometimes that that value in in the aesthetic as well. Uh, absolutely. We, I mean, we champion materials. Um, you know, low cost materials that are that are honest materials. Um, uh, and yeah, they they're designed. I guess well, not designed, but they they will get better with age. They won't need replacement. So yeah, that's that yeah. informs our work definitely. Hundred percent agree with that. And we would we add. You know, when you talk about materiality, I think it is that view around. Uh, standing the test of time about longevity, but also I guess often for us it's a there is a cost equation there. So using a nicer material, using an, a piece of aluminium for a handle as opposed to plastic, is a is a more expensive decision for us. But we know that 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 over the life of the product and the the sense of quality that you get from the use of that every single day. It's a it's an investment worth making. Yeah, and the the choice is that you have to. Um, I suppose I suppose you've got to educate the consumer in that. I mean, I I I know for example, you know, when I've been quite surprised, you know, when I bought a car once, or was looking at a car replacing what I already had, and that nice bit of shiny chrome was actually a bit of shiny plastic, and it mm-hmm. was very disappointing. And I remember still remember that experience. Um, but it's and it's nice to go to somebody. The products where, as you say, you've got a nice, you know, if you've got that cold feel of an aluminium handle, for instance, you know, um, and you actually have pleasure in using that. Um, and then that product is also going to last a lot longer in some ways. You know, the amount of plastic that sort of falls apart or, or is yep. badly selected or badly designed because um, mm-hmm. there's a lot more to it. We see, we've, we've done what we, we usually do, which is sort of get off topic because um, most of these topics they're never really that easily defined you know it's it's the interesting thing about design is it's um it's like a spider's web where you pull on one thing and it affects something else so you know even functionality you know we can start talking about as um sustainability and aesthetics and such like it's it's an amazing thing to do but thank thanks so much for joining us um for this podcast it's been brilliant talking to you guys i'm sure we, we learn a lot and it's a conversation that i think we should just keep having which should you know because this is also part of design. So uh, thank you very much for um, participating this week and um, hope you enjoyed the experience. Yeah. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Thanks so much, guys. All right. Take All right. care. Okay. Right. See okay, you. Bye. Thank you for listening to this podcast made possible by the support of Fisher & Paykel. The Design Institute of Australia would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathered and all First Nations people on the land now known as Australia. The DIA respectfully recognises Elders past, present and emerging. We celebrate the innovation, creativity and ingenuity of the world's oldest continuing creative culture.